right, well, would you bow your heads and let's ask God to speak through his word to our hearts. Lord, I thank you for your word, which encourages us, exhorts us, comforts us, convicts us, gives us clarity about how to live, gives us wisdom for all the difficult situations that we face. We thank you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who always directs our hearts towards love for Jesus and for our fellow man. And I just ask that you would help me to speak clearly now as we look at what your word has for us today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible or a Bible next to you and you're physically able to, I encourage you, please, look at God's word with me. Let's read this together. We looked last week at 1 Corinthians. And we'll be in 1 Corinthians again, right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 is what we looked at last week. And we saw that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church that is just filled, and he's filled with grief. Paul is. Because Christian brothers and sisters, spiritual family, are bringing great shame on the fame of Jesus in that community. Because in chapter 5, they've got sexual immorality going on in their midst that is shocking even to the world. A man has his father's wife, and they have no problem with it. They're still arrogant about their own spirituality. And now here we see that brothers and sisters in Jesus are suing each other. And more specifically, the rich people in the church are the only ones in that day and age who would have been able to do a lawsuit, afford a lawsuit. They had connections, and they had money. And so they're cheating in a legal way, brothers and sisters in Christ, out of their money and property. This week, Paul's going to give his concluding thoughts on what they were doing. Verses 9 to 11 are what we're going to be looking at this week, and they're very closely connected with last week. But there's so much in these three verses, I wanted to give them a sermon all on their own. But, what Paul is saying in verses 9 to 11, which we're about to read, actually supports everything he's already just told us. So they're all connected. Verses 1 to 11 are one chunk. I kind of unnaturally broke it up because I wanted to talk about the situation. What Paul's about to say now is um, three reasons not to do the wrong to each other that they were doing in verses 1 to 8. So verses 1 to 8 is suing each other, and they're doing wrong to each other. Verses 9 to 11, he says three things to motivate them not to do wrong to each other. One, he says wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Second, he says, that's who you were. You were people that were engrossed in wrongdoing. But, the third thing he says in verse 11 now, you, because of the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that's no longer who you are. So, those are three things that we're going to look at this morning together. Let's read these verses. 
1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Pause. This list that Paul gives here of sins, it's nine sins long. I want you to see how it starts and ends. It's like a hinge between what we saw in verses chapter 5 and what Paul's addressing in chapter 6. The problem in chapter 5, sexual immorality. That's how Paul starts the list. See that? Sexual immoral. Chapter 6 is all about swindling brothers and sisters out of money in court. That's how Paul ends the list. You see that? So, chapter 5, sexual immorality. Chapter 6, swindling legal ways of stealing money from your family in court because you have connections. That's what Paul's addressing in chapter 6. And so this passage is very much, it's not just cherry bomb in here. It's, it's connected to what goes before and what comes after. Three things we're going to see. One, wrongdoers will not inherit God's kingdom. Two, you were once wrongdoers. Three, because of the work of the triune God, that's not who you are anymore. So let's jump into point one. Wrongdoers will not inherit God's kingdom. Or do not, Paul says, verses 9 and 10, or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be tricked about this. Don't be deceived, he says. Don't let anybody tell you, nah, it's okay to have your father's wife. It's okay to be insane. It's okay to swindle each other. No, he says, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if we're going to understand this verse, the first thing we got to get is, what does this idea of inheriting God's kingdom mean? Well, God's kingdom is the realm where God is king. The realm where Jesus, the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, rules. God's kingdom is everything in heaven and on earth over which Jesus, the risen Christ, has authority. Right? Jesus is king, and everything a king rules over is his realm, his domain, his kingdom, which includes his church and the new creation that we will be a part of one day. But we also are a part of right now. I mean, we are a new creation work. This idea of inheriting the kingdom is the idea that we will be a part of God's new creation forever. Not just now, but for eternity. 
we will inherit the realm where God is king. Just like Adam was, the world was given to Adam to rule over. Now, the world is given to the new Adam, Jesus, who rules over it as God's son. And we, as God's sons and daughters, will share in Jesus' inheritance. We, too, will inherit the realm where God is king. And our role as God's saved and rescued humanity will be to take care of God's universe for eternity. Who knows what we will be doing one day. We can only dream about what God has in store for us in the new creation. But this hope of God's kingdom, of inheriting the kingdom, ought to motivate us. And that's why Paul has it here. He wants to motivate Christians in Corinth and for ages to come, flee from wrongdoing. For wrongdoers will not inherit, own, share in the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, says Paul in verse 9. Don't get tricked into thinking sin isn't a big deal, that it doesn't matter, that you can say you're a Christian and live like Jesus is not king. Then he gives a list, an example of nine specific sins you don't want to be tricked about, that you don't want to go there. Sins that should you give yourself completely over to them without turning from them and asking God for forgiveness and taking decisive steps towards help. It will exclude you from the kingdom of God for eternity. There is no place for thieves in the new creation. There is no place for sexual immorality in the new creation. There's no place for swindling in the new creation. You could go on and on. Do you want that in a new world? No, you don't. You don't want out of control anger and rage and bitterness and evil and greed in the new world. You don't. And therefore, as Christians, we are called out of this darkness. That does not mean that we don't struggle. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But there is a difference between a life devoted to sin and a life devoted to fighting sin. There is a key difference. So the first sin, the sin that heads this list is sexual immorality. This is a sin that our culture is drunk with. And it was no different in Paul's day and age. He would be surprised by none of what he sees in our day and age. Not at all. Because he writes about it in all his letters. To the church. Because those things were in the church. And we'll see some of that in chapter 6. The rest of it. In chapter 7. Sexual immorality. I'll talk about this and lump under um, the two subsets of sins that Paul lists here are adultery and Sex that is not between men and women. Practicing sexual sin in these areas. Now God is like any good loving parent. He doesn't just cherry pick rules 
for us to keep because he doesn't want us to have fun. Okay? He's a good father. He's a good creator. He calls us to live in ways that are in line with his creative design for us and for marriage and parenting. O obedience, okay, in these areas requires that we trust him, that he knows best. So when a parent makes a rule, a good parent, they don't just cherry pick just because trying to make themselves feel better. Don't do that. Why? Because it bugs me. Some parents, myself included, maybe we've done that before. But that's not what's going on here. God created us. He knows what is best. But instead of trusting our Creator's wisdom, Western society has come up with only one rule for sex, and it's called consent. If two or more minors consent, they can do whatever they want. If two or more adults consent, they can do whatever they want even hurt each other as long as it's consensual. But the vision of the Bible is that God has designed sex to be a physical one flesh joining between one man and one woman for life. The marriage relationship of total commitment to another person, it's intended by God to protect the deeply intimate deeply personal, physical joining of bodies from being twisted and used and abused in selfish ways just to get pleasure out of another human being for ourselves. In other words, in the Bible, marriage relationships are to be protected by covenant promises that we swear to each other. To love, to cherish, to, you know, to be faithful. In these promises, each person swears to give themselves completely to the other person in trust and in devotion and full allegiance and full of love for life. When humans choose to deviate from God's design and start using sex outside of the total allegiance and commitment to Jesus in marriage, it has a dehumanizing effect on us and destabilizing effect on an entire society. So when we give, when you give your whole body to someone, and even think about falling asleep next to someone, completely out of it, you're completely vulnerable in that moment, totally trusting another human with your body, the totality of your body. But outside of marriage, Humans always hold back other parts of their lives from their partner, as if those parts of their lives are unconnected to the totality of who they are. In other words, let me, let me try to clarify what I'm saying here. Sex outside of marriage says this. I give you my body, but not all my future hopes. Not my dreams. Probably not all my finances. Not my home, or maybe my home for a season. Not my protection, at least not completely. Not my trust, not my undying love. Sometimes it's as blunt as, I give you my body for a quick transaction of pleasure until another human comes along who could give me a better buzz. This is a tragic abuse of God's gifts, and it rips people and homes apart. And it also leads to humans making terrible decisions. 
if and when they do decide to marry. See, when people physically join with someone before marriage, there's a powerful physiological and psychological connection with that person that's almost impossible to avoid. This connection makes the rest of the human self want to do what the body is doing, to unite as one, to give love and devotion, even if the person they've joined with is not trustworthy. I'll say it a different way. In other words, the physical euphoria and the flood of dopamine released into the system when two bodies join together as one is God's design to draw a husband and wife together. In the protection of a covenant, of promises. But when that physical connection is made apart from a covenant, when they're made by a man and woman who perhaps should not have trusted each other, who are not totally devoted to each other, people get hurt. Always hard enough in a marriage. Selfishness can come even into any covenant. But marriage is meant to protect this physical connection. This fusing of two lives into one family. Two becoming totally one without losing their unique identities. So my point here in, in delving into this is I, I want you to see God doesn't just cherry-pick rules about sexuality. Okay, He is a good Father who has designed us to enjoy that level of physical connection and vulnerability within the protection of a covenant of love and oaths made that I'm not just going to share my body with you. I am going to Share my entire self with you while remaining a unique individual. I am going to give you my whole self. Our hopes become one. Our home becomes one. Our dream becomes one. Our pursuit of the Lord becomes one. We are one flesh in the totality of who we are. Anything less than, less than that, even within a marriage, rips apart body and soul, and has a dehumanizing effect on us. I could say so much more about this topic, but I want to save that for more sermons that we have coming up in 1 Corinthians. For now, I just want to move on to some of the other sins in Paul's list. The next one we'll talk about is idolatry. And with idolatry, I'll lump in greed. Idolatry is putting something other than the living God on the throne of your life. It's living like or treating something in this world like it is more important than God. It's putting something other than the living God on the throne of your life. Replacing God with either another God of human invention, like the gods of the various religions of this world, false gods. Or far more common in the West, it's treating some created thing as if it were our God. This is where greed can play in. When we are greedy, our hearts become discontent with what the living God has given us. And we feel we're owed something more. We basically say, I'm not satisfied with you, God, or with what you have given me to live on. I want more money, and so I'm going to seek it. Oh, satisfy me. Money. 
I'm going to seek more comfort, more health, more toys, a better job. And so we turn to other people and other things in a quest to get comfort and love and security and meaning and satisfaction and joy in life that we feel we're owed. Greed and idolatry play hand in hand. We start living our lives for the things that we want instead of for God. Greed is the fuel that feeds idolatrous cravings for other things besides our creator. I'll give you a practical example of idolatry that I have battled in my own life. You mentioned it earlier, hunting. Right? I love hunting. And the strength and the ability to climb through the mountains and chase deer, that's a gift from God. The food it provides is a gift from God. Being in the woods is a gift from God. Seeing the beauty of creation is a gift from God. But I can use hunting to either push me towards God in thanksgiving and towards others in my life, seeking to share the gift with them, enjoy creation with them, or I can give hunting and the status of an idol in my life. And turn to hunting to give me purpose and meaning and significance and fame and identity. This is who I am. Look at me. I'm a good hunter. I could also turn to hunting to save me, to rescue me from boredom or from discouragement. Things at the church aren't going well. Save me, tree stand, from my problems. Hobbies are great gifts. They make terrible saviors. For starters, your hobby can't forgive you when you've really blown it at home. It can only numb the pain. A sport makes a terrible God because one day you won't have the strength to serve it. And it will no longer serve you. It can't give your life meaning. It can't raise you from the dead. But Jesus is the source of life and meaning and purpose. There's many times in my life that hunting has crept to idle status. Some of you may even have seen that. Don't be afraid to call it out. Holly does. And it always ends up hurting my relationship with the Lord and hurting other people. Because my priorities get out of whack. This doesn't mean that I need to abandon hunting. It doesn't mean that if you think, man, I might have an idol in my life. Something that distracts me from the Lord. Something that pulls my heart away from worshiping Jesus. Something that gets in the way. Something I turn to when I'm sad, scared, lonely, depressed. I, I say, save me, satisfy me, rescue me, fill that ache. What is that for you? What do you dream about? What do you long for? What do you say, if only I had this, it would be happy. If that is not more of the living God, then that's an idol in your life. And the answer, especially if it's a good thing, isn't get rid of that thing necessarily, although you may need to fast from it for a season. The answer is pursue Jesus more and thank him for the gifts that he's giving and share it with others. There's four other things on the list that Paul mentioned, and I want to work through them quickly. Paul mentions thieves and swindlers. Swindler is someone who is doing what the people in Corinth were doing to their brothers and sisters in Christ. A swindler cheats you out of money, not usually by reaching into your pockets and actually stealing your money, but by convincing you to give up your money through deceit, or by legally putting you in a position where you have to give up your money. A thief just straight up takes what doesn't belong to him. So 
thieving and swindling, same thing. And the Corinthians were doing it. Christians were doing this. And that's why Paul is writing this. He says, this is the opposite of what God has created humans for. God is a giver, the greatest giver. And humans were created to be life givers like our creator, not takers. To be a taker of the things others have is to rebel against the God who made us. The opposite of love. Another area of wrongdoing that Paul lists is drunkenness. Paul is not saying drinking here. He's calling out drunkenness. When someone is drunk or high on drugs, for that matter, they have yielded control of their body and their mind to something other than God and His Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the more drunk someone becomes, the more and more self-control they lose. And the man without self-control is absolutely incapable of loving God and others. He's like a city without walls, completely open to every impulse that comes of anger and lust and foolish speech and foolish actions. He's incapable, the drunk man is incapable of giving his life in service to others with wisdom and truth. Drunkenness is the height of human selfishness. When we are drunk, we put our ability to love and truly care for other people on hold. And we even put other people at risk. We put our own selves at risk. We use our words not to love people. Might say we're loving people, but no. When we're drunk, we destroy our ability to make wise choices with our bodies that honor the Lord. Drunkenness is evil, always. Not just because it's bad and God's against fun. I hope you see this. It's because God is for the fullness of our humanity being displayed. And drunkenness makes us like animals. Staggering around, doing whatever we feel like. Creatures of impulse and not creatures of wisdom. I hope you see this. is God's not just bashing drunkenness. It's, it's because he's for humanity. And he loves us. And he hates what dehumanizes people. We were made to serve Jesus, not the unhindered impulses of our body that's been numbed by booze. What's even more sad is that alcohol and drugs, even other things that we give ourselves to, sugar, they can function as false saviors from pain, from suffering, from boredom, from guilt. What happens when you make an alcoholic feel guilty? They run to their savior. What's their savior? More alcohol. There's a better way. But Jesus, who we'll see in a couple minutes, forgives, cleanses, and justifies. Beer can numb pain. It can't heal the heart. Only God can do that. The final thing... I want to draw out on the list. It's not the last thing on the list, but the one I wanted to talk about is slander. When we slander someone, we say a statement about their character or their actions that's simply not true. Or it's only partly true. Or we just suspect it's true and it damages their reputation. 
problem with slander is that it uses words to distort reality in our favor and often to our benefit. Um, conservative evangelical Christians have the capacity to be some of the worst slanderers, and I, I don't say that lightly. There have been many times when conservative Christian leaders have used slander to get other leaders they disagree with on secondary issues fired from their jobs at seminaries and churches where they worked. They use, they try to paint other church leaders as liberals to get them fired. Now, sometimes it is true, and conversations need to be had. But there's a lot of times where it's a lot more complex. But complexity doesn't lead to people getting fired. And so sometimes stuff simply gets skewed, believed, or downright made up. This is dishonoring to the God of truth, and it's a failure to love people made in God's image. Now, we could dive deeper into all the ins and outs of the sins on Paul's list. And yet, I just wanted to scratch the surface of each one of them enough that I, I just want the, the main thing I want you to see in this list is that God, the, the God that Paul worships, is not just a heavenly policeman who doesn't want humans to break rules. He is a loving and wise Father who loves us and wants us to learn to live and love like Him. Now there's. Another thing that Paul says that I want you to see in verse 11 is you were once these rebellious wrongdoers. That is what some of you were. Paul tells the Corinthians that many of them had been drowning in the sins he lists before they trusted in Jesus. They were sexually immoral. They were thieves. They were drunkards. They were all of those things past tense. The believer in Jesus is someone who is not afraid to say, that is what I was. I was all those things. I'm no better than anybody else. I did things like that. I was once what you are now, but Jesus rescued me. Not through some self-improvement program where I make myself better than other people now. No, through a rescue program where he transforms me from the inside out by the Spirit and forgives me. That's where we're headed next. Verse 11, you were all those things, says Paul, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So because of the work of the triune God, that's no longer who you are. If you trust in Jesus, you were washed in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of God. You were sanctified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of God, and you were justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. We'll look at each one in turn. Christians are those who have been washed, sanctified, and justified in Jesus' name by the Spirit of the living God. And if you're not a Christian yet, you're sitting here, um, if you're somebody who says, I'm still stuck in verses 9 to 10, stuck neck, neck deep in the sins that Paul lists, unwilling and unable to stop, then verse 11 is for you too. There's hope. There's hope that it could be spoken of you. Such were you. But, 
you were washed in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of our God. This image of washing in Jesus' name is, is pictured by Christian baptism. Going through water in baptism doesn't actually wash away our sins. No, trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit cleanses us from the stain of our sinful past. The life of Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleanses from sin. Baptism just pictures that internal bath that he gives us. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this in a letter that he wrote to a pastor named Titus. Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Through the washing, not because of anything that we had done, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his blood, we might become heirs, inheritors, having the hope of eternal life. The washing of rebirth. Did you see that? Hear that in those verses? The washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out. That's water language. Poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christians are those who have been washed in Jesus' name by the life-giving Spirit of God who's been poured out on everyone who truly yields allegiance to Jesus. The Spirit washes us from the inside out, making our hearts new, giving us new longings for following the Lord and new conviction and grief over sin that wasn't there before. It might have bothered us, but it doesn't convict us until the Spirit comes in and says, you need to change, you need to grow. And the Spirit also sanctifies us. See that in verse 11? We have been sanctified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The word sanctification is closely tied to the word saint. Christians are saints. In other words, we are those who have been sainted. Which is to say... We are the sanctified ones. All that language is the same concept in the writers of the New Testament, especially Paul. In sanctification, in sainting us, God takes a sinner and claims him. You're mine. Then he cleanses him, and then he calls him to belong to him. First, he claims us as our own. That's at the heart of what the word sanctify means. To sanctify something is to set it apart for a special purpose or task. We are set apart to be God's new humanity through Jesus. And then, because we're filthy on our own, if we're going to belong to God and go into his house, we've got to get a bath at the door. And how do we get that? We're cleansed. By the blood of Jesus before we can enter his temple. Sanctified. In the ancient Hebrew tabernacle and temple, only sanctified objects could belong in the temple. We, the temple, have been sanctified. We've been cleansed. We've been washed. And we've been called. Sanctification is when God calls us to live for him. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 that those in Corinth were called to be saints. 
called saints. Sainted people are sanctified by God to be saints. To be set apart for God is to have a calling. And your calling isn't something you figure out by meditation. I wonder what God is calling me to do. No, God has given you a calling. You're called saint. And he's expressly told you what that looks like. I'm not saying that God can't guide and lead you. But your first and primary calling is a saint. You are a sainted one. Sanctified. Sainted people are called. Growth in godliness is part of this calling. As we learn to become gradually more and more who we are in Christ. But sanctification is more than just growth in being holy. As some has... It, it was, it's been really popular for a long time um, to, to describe sanctification only as growth in godliness. It means that. Don't get me wrong. But in the last 20 to 30 years, more and more word studies have been being done on this word sanctify, saint, saint, across the whole Bible. And we've realized, oh, it's much deeper than that. It includes that idea, but... It also includes the idea of saint. You are claimed. You are called. You are cleansed. And part of your calling means you're gradually growing to become who you are. Till the day that you stand, stand before the Lord, holy and blameless in His sight. Finally, Christians have been justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of our God. When God justifies a man, He declares him to be in the right. In his sight. Have you ever made an excuse for something? I used to be called. Uh, one of former elder. At Adamsville. Sang this song to me. Joel Sears. Uh, dear brother. Sang this song to me when I was I think 13 or 14. Excuses. Excuses. I hear them every day. Because I was making an excuse for something in Sunday school. Probably I didn't do the lesson. I was making excuses. And I, that stuck with me. It was a good humbling blow to my pride that I really needed. Because it was a wake up. Yeah, yeah, that is an excuse. I'm sure Carl, as a soccer coach, heard all my excuses. Uh, that I don't even remember. I am a justification factory. Call me out for something, I'll have a justification. In my flesh. Humans are self-justifiers. I... No, I did that, but it was hurtful. I know I was angry, but it's because I didn't have this. I know I would. We can justify just about anything. Why? We are hardwired to want to be in the right. To want to be the justified ones. And deep down, we try to justify ourselves because we know we need it. We need to be justified. But here's the problem. You know what human justifications can never do? They can't erase the truth of what you have done wrong. No matter how many justifications and excuses you make, you cannot take away your sin. You can't declare past sin to be in the right by excuses. We need a justification that comes from outside us. And not, it's not based on what we have done that we can't change. But it's based on the perfect 
just status of a perfect human. In the Bible, to be justified is a beautiful thing. It's to be called righteous in God's heavenly court of law. No matter what anyone else can say about you, God justifies the believer not because the believer is righteous in and of himself. So how can God do that? Can you imagine somebody in a court of law and they play a video clip of this person murdering someone else? Everybody knows they're guilty. They make their excuses. Their lawyer tries to make excuses. Well, he was pleading insanity. Or he was on drugs, so it wasn't really his fault. But the point is, somebody's dead and he did. And now can you imagine the judge says, not guilty. I saw it. I heard you defend. Not guilty. Oh, he's wrong. But he's not guilty. And not only is he not guilty, he is righteous. Enjoy your life. What in the world? Like, that is an unjust judge. And yet, God has justified everyone who trusts in Jesus, no matter what they've done. But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. How can God say you are in the right? It's because of the good deeds of our human representative and his righteousness alone. Jesus. Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' perfect obedience counts for us, even while he works right living in us by the Spirit. This is how we are saved. Not just by having our sins forgiven, but by being washed, sanctified, and justified by Jesus and his Spirit. So that we're qualified to participate in God's new world, no matter how bad we've soiled our lives with the sins that Paul lists, or others he doesn't list. All right, so let me summarize what we've seen and conclude. Paul is clear. Christians, don't be deceived into thinking that choosing to walk in rebellion against God is permissible under the rule of King Jesus. He used to walk in those ways that Paul lived. But for those of us who've turned to Jesus, we are washed we are sanctified, we are justified. So the call for the Christian is to become who you are. Positionally. To become who God has called you to be in Christ by the help of the Spirit. To live like you are His own child. You are justified. Drop your excuses for sin. And run to the justification of Jesus. Find your rest there. Your God has declared you to be in the right because of Jesus. No matter what you've done, you are justified. You ever worry about what people are thinking about you or saying about you? As a pastor, somebody, I think the more upfront you are, the more you tend to struggle with that. Why are they thinking this? What are they saying? How do they feel? How am I coming across? Okay? You ever worry about what people think? You ever try to please others to appear just in their sight, to appear righteous? This doctrine of justification can set us free. God has declared me righteous. 
that lets me admit my sin because my perfection doesn't my per, my my standing in God's sight doesn't go up and down depending on whether I had a bad day or a good day. Other people it might, right? But my justification with God is secure. That is a secure place. It allows me to admit that I'm wrong many times. To ask for forgiveness and for help. And it helps me know that my God loves me. <clears throat> my acceptance in his sight isn't based on my performance, but on the performance of another. I have a new identity because of Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning and you feel like maybe I am still stuck, I should say, if you're if you're not a Christian this morning, you're saying, I'm still stuck in verses 9 to 10. I can't say this is what I was, but instead this is still very much who I am. I want you to know this. If verses 9 and 10 are who you are, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's hope. Turn to Jesus. No matter how stuck you feel you are, how much you might feel like you've torpedoed your life, Jesus offers a new start every day. He gives a bath for the dirty. He makes saints out of sinners, and he justifies the ungodly. That is the hope of the Christian. Run to Jesus. Don't let anything stand in your way. And if you, as a Christian, someone who has been washed, claimed, cleansed, called, justified, if you're saying, you know, those sins are just like they were in Corinth, they're trying to creep back in my life. They're trying to own me. Hear this as a warning, as a wake-up call. That's what Paul is doing in this letter. That's why he's writing it. He's writing to the Corinthian church, warning them, saying, Become who you are, lest it be revealed that you never truly knew the Lord. But you were in it for other things. Run, run to Jesus. The gospel is good news. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for the good news of the gospel. That rescue comes from outside of us and transforms us. And I ask God that the goodness of the good news wouldn't help us make us not hear the warning. I pray that the warning that Paul gives against sin would make us run to the good news and to the King, Jesus, who is himself the good at the heart of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name.